Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, A Bowl of Nourishment for Peasants and Kings by B. Wilson. Jason Gay has an article, The Thankless Job of a School Lunch Maker. Shannon McDonald wrote, The doctor is in, but the patient is out of state. William Silber wrote, Inflation is down, but it wasn't transitory. And we'll follow that up with an article by Jim Carlton, Pickleball Players Thwart Back at Silicon Valley Elites. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, A Bowl of Nourishment for Peasants and Kings. Eat more soup. That, in a nutshell, or a soup bowl, would be my diet advice for anyone looking for a gentle way to happier eating. This is a time of year when many of us are looking for ways, large and small, to reset. The danger is that we adapt new regimens so self-punishing that we soon give up and feel worse than before. By contrast, cooking and eating more soup is a way to eat more healthily than you can actually stick to because it comes without any dreary sense of denial, especially if you add some buttered toast on the side. Instead of going on a New Year diet, I try to make January and February a time when I focus on eating more soup in all its heartiest homemade varieties, from Greek avogomeno with chicken, rice, and lemon to Vietnamese pho with noodles and meat stock. By soup, I don't mean a fat-free cauldron of cabbage soup, though if that delights you, don't let me stop you, nor do I mean a dainty cup of anything or a delicate starter of consomme, as lovely as that may be. When I say soup, I'm talking about a filling bowl of something thick with noodles, beans, vegetables, herbs, and olive oil, a kind of what's-in-the-fridge minestrone. I won't call it chunky, since that word was trademarked by Campbell's in relation to soup in 2019. Campbell's chunky soups are currently the market leader in the United States, and a survey found that 75% of consumers associate the word with soup. Let's call these concoctions hearty instead. At the height of the pandemic, I made and ate versions of this satisfying soup almost every day for lunch and never felt bored. This kind of soup can provide cheer and health food in a single pot. If I had to choose one dish to live off of for the rest of my life, I would unhesitantly go for soup. Then again, this might be cheating because soup is very far from being just one dish. So far as I'm aware, there isn't a single cuisine in the world that doesn't have its own version of soup, and usually dozens of them. Some of the oldest recorded recipes, carved into stone tablets in Babylon more than 4,000 years ago, are for simple soups made from herbs, vegetables, and various meats boiled in water. Why eat more soup? 
For one thing, I can't think of a more appealing delivery system for vegetables. Soup is like salad, but so much more warming and without the virtuous overtones. No other food can make you feel quite so looked after, which is something we could all do with more of. Consider the fact that the word restaurant originally referred to a kind of French soup designed to restore those who ate it. For many of us, soup carries memories of being fed by a parent when we were sick. I no longer crave the canned chicken noodle or tomato soups that my busy mother often gave me when I was a child. What I do yearn for is the feeling of safety that came from cradling a bowl of something brothy, given to me by a kind person. There is a reason why the popular self-help books are called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Chicken Salad for the Soul doesn't have quite the same ring. Another reason to eat more soup is that, in all its varieties, from cream of pumpkin to French onion, it has an amazing ability to make us feel full. In 2005, Richard Mattis, a nutrition scientist at Purdue University, published a landmark paper titled Soup and Satiety. Mattis and his colleagues found that giving people soup satisfied them much more than giving them the same amount of calories in the form of juice. When the subjects in the study drank a glass of apple juice, it didn't make them feel full. But when the same apple juice was heated up and presented as apple soup, they were still full an hour later. This suggests that it is the idea of soup, as much as anything, that makes us feel nourished. The original meaning of the word soup, which is related to the Italian zuppa as well as French soupe, is broth poured onto bread. At its most basic, soup was not a particular dish, but simply the most fundamental way for ordinary working people to satisfy their hunger. Soups were parchy things made with whatever was at hand, which was often not much. The European folk story, Stone Soup, tells of villagers who try to make a soup with nothing but a stone and some water. Each person adds another ingredient to the soup, a carrot, some herbs, some potatoes, butter, salt, and pepper, until it has become something rich and delicious for everyone to share. This peasant soup as meal was a very different thing from the soups eaten by the rich, which were just one course among many, more like a snack than a meal. King Louis XIV of France was said to be crazy about soups, preferring them highly seasoned with strong meat broth. His sister-in-law, the Princess Palatine, wrote that she regularly saw the king eat four full plates of soup, followed by a whole peasant, a partridge, a salad, some pastry, and fruit, and some hard-boiled eggs. The notion that soup should be served as a smooth and suave appetizer, rather than the main event, goes back to this aristocratic tradition of European soup eating. As the novelist Alexandre Dumas wrote in his Grand Dictionary of Cooking, published after his death in 1873, the name of soup is applied to every food whose destiny is to be served in a soup tureen at the beginning of a meal. A first course of soup can be a very lovely thing, whether it's a salty cup of clam chowder or a silky smooth dish of emery green watercress soup that tickles your appetite rather than sating it. 
In the summer, there are few nicer ways to start a meal than with a cooling soup of gazpacho or iced cucumber. But while the days are still so short and dark, the soups I love the most are the kind that leave you satisfied all by themselves. And now, the thankless job of a school lunch maker. I perform multiple jobs at the moment. I write a mediocre sports column. I scribble out this middling humor column. I drive a complimentary shuttle bus to youth sporting events. And I make a pair of underappreciated school lunches. I wish to discuss the final job. I don't know how I wound up with the assignment. I think it was something my wife and I decided early on. She carried and gave birth to two children. Therefore, it was only fair I would make the school lunches. It's quite clear she got the better deal. Because this is thankless work. Every weekday, somewhere between 40 minutes and 10 seconds before my children head off to school, I stand in a chaotic kitchen raiding the cabinets and fridge to scramble together a lunch that hopefully meets minimal nutritional standards and does not include a choking hazard. My loose ambition for a menu is at least one vegetable, at least one fruit, a healthy midday snack of some kind, a cookie, and two French cigarettes. Okay, I am kidding about the cigarettes, but my children would reject them anyway because they have proven themselves to be fussy diners, impossible to please. Seldom a week goes by in which they haven't lobbed at least one criticism at my lunch-making skills, leaving me in a heap of self-doubt like a trained chef denied a star. My daughter confided that she's been trading most of her lunch away for snacks from other students, and she asked me to supply more tradable items. Honestly, this left me impressed and believing she will one day have a shot at making the Forbes 400. I have tried hard to please. Social media teams with wonder parents making gorgeous school lunches for children. Finger sandwiches, petite fours, clever amuse bosses. I cannot compete at this level because I have a life with other important responsibilities, like watching Toronto Raptors games and looking at my phone. But there was a long stretch in which both children asked me to cut the crusts off peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which I did even as I privately wondered if cutting the crust off peanut butter and jelly sandwiches was the sort of cushy helicopter parenting which would give them the impression that life should be easy without frustration since life is actually full of burdensome crusts, like having to go to meetings and housewarming parties. If you're thinking, just find the stuff they like, you can't cave completely to a child's whims because every child would ask for nothing but chocolate bars and cheese puffs, washed down with a fountain soda, and if you give your child that, it's only a matter of time before you show up on the 11 p.m. news trying to explain why your kid robbed a string of casinos. Is it true you gave the suspect chocolate bars and cheese puffs every day for lunch? Uh, lights French cigarette. The solution, of course, is to give my children the assignment of making their own lunches. I am sure there are self-reliant readers here who did precisely that for many years, and all I can say is, you're not helping here. 
I can barely get my children to put on shoes on a sub-zero day. Asking them to cut up apples and fill a small container with baby carrots would be like asking them to pilot the Goodyear blimp, and if I'm being honest, they definitely rather pilot a blimp than eat carrots and apple slices. The other day, my son told me upbeat things about a food program at his school, which brings in prepared lunches for students, and I was struck by the implication. He is trying to outsource me. He is putting me on the shelf. Like most parents, I am sensitive to this notion, and I asked him to give me another chance. He agreed. I am going to give him the healthiest, most delicious, satisfying lunch he's ever had. If not, he can make his own cheese puff, chocolates, and cigarettes. And now the doctor is in, but the patient is out of state. State emergency orders during the COVID pandemic made it possible for patients in one state to consult with doctors in another via telephone and internet. Those orders have now expired, however, and that flexibility has ended. With limited exceptions, doctors can practice medicine only in states where they are licensed and where their patients are physically present. In 2009, I began treating a nine-year-old from New Jersey who had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, medulloblastoma. His oncologist felt he needed the treatment and experience of a big city hospital, so they referred him to me. Though the boy and his family traveled between states for appointments, he remained my patient at all times. I feel that his parents questions, discussed his imaging, and proposed new therapies when others failed. He received state-of-the-art treatment and benefited from the continuity of care across state lines, though he relapsed and died years later. Instead of enlightening local governments about the benefits of telemedicine, the pandemic highlighted what physicians are forbidden to do. While I never hesitated to pick up the phone to call the boy's parents and give them advice, I wouldn't legally be able to do that now because New Jersey has decided that a simple phone call constitutes the practice of medicine. Giving medical advice to an out-of-state patient over the phone can put me at risk of losing my license and in states such as California and New Jersey of criminal charges as well. At the initiation of a telemedicine visit, doctors at some hospitals must now ask patients where they are document the location in the medical chart, and end the visit if the patient is in another state. Hospital lawyers may even instruct physicians to avoid giving medical advice by phone to their in-state patients who are temporarily out of state for vacation or work, a scenario that could affect any of us. This is callous and in conflict with a physician's ethical obligations. In response, many patients drive to telemedicine parking lots in states where their physicians are licensed. Sick people are sitting in their cars and talking to their doctors using cell phones when they could be in the comfort of their homes. At the outset of the pandemic, some state medical boards feared that telehealth would enable out-of-state doctors to poach patients from local physicians, especially in rural communities. State health authorities also didn't want the hassle of pursuing malpractice claims across state lines. These concerns were unfounded. Fees and carve-outs 
for example, restricting interstate telemedicine to specialty care or requiring referrals, could address these issues without undue limits on access, as could a requirement that physicians adhere to the laws of the state in which the patient is located. The benefits of telemedicine outweigh any hypothetical concerns. Rural areas lack specialists, but rural residents need specialized health care as much as anyone. Distant specialists, accessible to rural residents by phone, shouldn't be thought of as competitors to rural physicians, but as resources capable of extending patients' lives. Without interstate telehealth, I'd have to be licensed in all the states where my patients live if I wanted to continue treating their rare childhood cancers or bone tumors. Because I believe strongly in the benefits of telehealth, I've obtained licenses in six states through the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Doing this took months, cost thousands of dollars, and still leaves me unable to care virtually for patients in 43 states. The process is so cumbersome that less than 1% of physicians use it. Because of those burdens and my inability to care legally for my patients unless they travel to my states of licensure, and with the help of the Pacific Legal Foundation, I am suing the medical board in New Jersey to end its restrictions on access to specialty telehealth care. I am challenging New Jersey's rules that only physicians licensed in-state may care for patients using telehealth. The Constitution gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce and prohibits states from erecting barriers on their own. The First Amendment also prohibits states from singling out certain speech for limitation. Calls with patients before and after treatment are simply conversations. Military doctors have long been able to practice medicine across state lines. In 2018, it became legal for sports teams doctors to practice medicine during out-of-state away games. If we can make a law that allows treatment across state lines for a National Football League player, can't we consider it for a child with a brain tumor? As a doctor, I want to provide the proper care for my patients no matter where they are, and I shouldn't have to risk losing my license or jail time to do so. Because states have failed to modernize physician licensure, it's time for the courts to weigh in. And now, William Silber. Article, Inflation is Down, But It Wasn't Transitory. Inflation has come down without yet causing a recession, leading Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz to claim victory. More than two years after economists divided into opposing camps over the nature of the post-pandemic inflation, we now know which side was right, he wrote recently. This inflation has confirmed that the earlier price increases were transitory, driven largely by supply disruptions and sectoral shifts in demand. Mr. Stiglitz dismissed the role the Federal Reserve played in the inflation's recent decline. It's too early to declare inflation dead. But even if it is, that wouldn't mean it was transitory. It's a mistake to overlook the importance of the Fed's monetary restraint in offsetting expansionary pandemic policies. A tight monetary policy can reduce inflation without causing recession, according to the rational expectations theory. 
the concept that people make decisions based on all the information available to them, including how policymakers behave. Nobel Prize winning economists Robert Lucas and Thomas Sargent helped develop this theory. Mr. Sargent showed that hyperinflation in Austria, Germany, Hungary, and Poland after World War I disappeared almost overnight when those governments exercised fiscal restraint that encouraged credible anti-inflationary policies. The decline in inflation during 2023 can be explained in a similar way. The Fed's tightening in the beginning of 2022 gave consumers, savers, and investors a credible signal that it wouldn't tolerate inflation. The Fed said it would rate interest rates as high as necessary to reduce upward price pressures and then made good on its word. This evidently persuaded companies to restrain price increases lest they lose business. In November 22, as the Fed's tightening continued, the Journal reported that big United States retailers, Walmart, Target, and Amazon, told their suppliers they would no longer pay high prices, ask for discounts, and in some cases canceled orders. The cutback in inflationary prices by retailers encouraged customers to continue shopping. This prevented the decline in economic activity that most economists had expected. But there is a difference between today's disinflation and the post-World War I experience. The Fed's credibility this time didn't come from a fundamental shift towards budgetary balance as it did then, but from 40 years of successful inflation targeting by the central bank. That matters. The United States is running a fiscal deficit of 6% of gross domestic product, an unprecedented number for a fully employed peacetime economy. Going forward, the credibility of the Fed's commitment to raise rates as high as necessary may crumble under political pressure from Congress to cap government interest costs. Lawmakers should use the opportunity provided by the Fed's recent success to restore budgetary balance. If they don't, the decline in inflation will be transitory. And now, pickleball players thwart back at Silicon Valley elites. Presidio Heights is a rarefied community where Silicon Valley's elite mingle with affluent families, a real estate description coups. It is also ground zero of the latest pickleball battle in America. Legions of paddle wielders are feuding with the denizens of some of the priciest mansions in the country. The skirmish started last summer back when Holly Peterson, who lives with her husband, venture capitalist and Hotwire.com co-founder Carl Peterson in a 107-year-old mansion valued at $29 million, helped launch a petition asking the city to suspend pickleball in a nearby playground called Presidio Wall. The endless racket threatens the fragile ecosystem and our community's prestige, the petition argued. A roughly 12,000-square-foot, eight-bedroom, Tudor-style home commands views of the Golden State Bridge and of the free public pickleball courts. Peterson's mansion property also includes its own private pickleball court, a fact derived by some pickleballers. 
It's unbelievable that someone has a pickleball court in their yard and wants to get a pickleball court shut down, said Woody Wicks, 47, a player in the park. Presidio Wall's pickleball courts are often packed and on weekends draw upwards of 200 pickleballers, some enduring long waits to play. After a review that included an acoustic engineering study, the San Francisco Recreation and Park Department in recent days proceeded with a plan to take six of the 12 pickleball courts there out of commission and turn them back into solely tennis courts. Pickleball proponents have come out swinging. In a demonstration on a recent Friday, about 50 pickleballers stood defiantly on the courts and held their paddles high. Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go, they chanted. Mary Hickey, a pickleball instructor who helped organize the protest, had laid out the game plan to the group earlier. This is pickleball disobedience, she told them. They will not stop us from playing. Some argue San Francisco has thornier issues than pickleball to tackle, including homelessness and a drug crisis. On a recent Thursday, dozens descended on City Hall armed with balls, paddles, and signs reading, more pickleball, less fentanyl. The setting of the current pickle couldn't be more idyllic. The Presidio Wall, named after a stone boundary built more than a century ago for the former army post, is a beloved haven for exercise and socializing. The wall sits on the edge of a forest with views of San Francisco Bay and historic mansions. There are tennis and basketball facilities, swings and ball fields. Five years ago, Hickey, the pickleball instructor, was among the first to play the game on the Presidio Wall tennis courts. She and other pioneers would put up community pickleball nets and take them down each day. Use exploded prompting the city to allow more convenient nets with wheels to be left on the courts, which made it easier for pickleballers to move in when tennis matches were over, she said. Presidio Wall proved so popular with pickleballers, say that three times, that San Francisco's Park Department restriped two more tennis courts in 2022 to create pickleball courts, and in May 2023 agreed to expand play hours. The city agency said then it would reevaluate usage and adjust the schedule as needed. Back last August came Peterson's petition, asking the city to pause pickleball at Presidio Wall and do a formal environmental study. The petition was posted on change.org and then removed after media coverage, according to San Francisco's Chronicle. Testifying that month at a meeting of the city's Recreation and Park Commission, Peterson said the loud whacking of pickleballs as early as 6.20 a.m. jeopardized property values and said, I personally have suffered irreversible damages, noting her own house has been on the market for six months. The city recently moved the start time for games to 9 a.m. I've looked after my beautiful Julia Morgan house for 17 years and I'm very frustrated because 12 pickleball courts were put in, Peterson, standing at a speaker's lectern, told the commission. She closed by imploring officials, please help us. Peterson's neighbor, Mary Tesluck, also testified, 
describing a frequent popping sound and the yelling and the shouting and the screaming that comes along with this very passionate sport. Afterward, San Francisco's Park Commission contracted with acoustics firm Salter for a noise assessment study, which was conducted over a seven-day period in late October and one busy day in early November. Ambient noise levels measured at about 40 decibels at several locations, including balconies and roof decks. Pickleball readings spiked to as high as 94 decibels, equivalent to a hairdryer. Pickleballers were recently served the grim news. The city intends to close six courts at Presidio. Officials plan to turn the courts back into tennis only. Last Friday, the pickleballers obeyed a city order to remove rolling nets from six courts at Presidio. But they identified a loophole and staged the rebellion. As other nets were coming off, the advocates carried stationary pickleball nets that had been pre-assembled back onto the court. Unless they send a ranger to arrest us, we're using these courts, said 62-year-old Susie Safdie, her eyes flashing. Try and stop us. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.